This is Deuteronomy 6, verse 10 through 19. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at, at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. This is the word of the Lord. Well done, buddy. All right. So, yeah. Uh, again, good morning. Uh, if you're new, welcome. This is week two in a three-week series called Hearing God. That's what we're calling this. It's, again, it's August, you guys, which means the fall is right around the corner. How many of you guys have, typically every year, your fall is busy? Your fall kind of ramps up. You get school stuff. You get, fall tends to be more active, and that's going to happen. This is unique fall, not just because school is back, but like the planet is coming back uh, in a way which feels new and different. Um, but listen, obviously COVID-19 is still very real. Experts, But experts are talking about how the U.S. economy is finally back to where it was in fall of 2019 now, which, which is at least that's a good sign. And this plus relatively back to normal work hours for many of us in school, all of this means our lives are about to ramp up. And the temptation, you guys, <laughs> is, to, is to rush and rebuild our rhythms before responding to God's voice. That's going to be the temptation. And so as Jesus' family, in this moment, now more than ever, we must learn to respond first to God's voice and from there rebuild our lives and rhythms. So for a whole new era, that's it. Respond to rebuild. First is response, not the other way around. And this is actually another way of saying the vision of our church, right? We want to be with Jesus first so that we can then become like him and then do what Jesus would do if he was in our shoes in Point Loma or whatever. This is the vision of our church. And it all starts with hearing God, being with Jesus, being in a place we can hear his voice. And so that's why we're in Deuteronomy 6. It's this crucial moment in the story where God is birthing a nation. Israel was not a nation yet. And they would one day be this nation that would bring the Messiah for all nations, Jesus. And God is building his nation around this idea right here, this idea that in the world of the scriptures, it's this, hearing God is a synonym for obeying God. That's the idea this country, Israel, is going to be built on. And it's the idea his church will be built on. In Hebrew, to hear implies an act, not just passive listening, but active response. Uh, otherwise, you don't hear. That's the idea of hearing in the Bible. 
And, and when, you, when you put it that way, we, it exposes our modern hearing problems, right? We have a hearing problem. We talked about this last week. It's common for even Christians to dismiss Jesus' teaching, to be like, yes, I agree, Jesus is great, but then, but then to live opposite <laughs> those teachings while still thinking we're Christians. That is a modern problem. Um, it's common to say we hear from God and, and be like, you know, I will sing of the goodness of God. Jesus, you're the only way. And then like in real life, live like he's not the only way. Um, and, and we can even agree with his teachings on, on sex and money and power, the big three, right? How to use our influence, how to use our bodies. We can agree with Jesus that he's right. But at the end of the day, do what we want with our bodies and money and our influence. And then come to church every week. You know what I mean? It's, it's a... It's an interesting duality that we're able to live in that the Bible doesn't acknowledge. And so that disconnect is foreign to Jesus. For Jesus and the Bible, hearing God is a synonym for obeying him. So in our text, this is the idea that God's building his nation on. He's br- and he's bringing them into new land, new territory, right? They're about to reset and rebuild after a crazy season, just like we are. And, and God's like, I'm about to lead you across the Jordan River. That's like the threshold. That's the beginning of the new. And God's like, I'm about to lead you in a whole new thing. Your future, your kids are all on the other side of that river. And, and as your God, I, will be, I promise to be faithful and good to you. And, and as my family, I want, I want your faithfulness in return. This means hearing and obeying everything I say, which means believing I can be trusted. I'm a God who can be trusted. Do you believe I'm that God? Um, And so we want that to confront us today. Do we believe God can be trusted? Because as we head into fall and then 2022 and then the whole decade of the 20s, God's bringing us into new territory. We can all feel it in the air. This is something we've never done. It's a moment of resetting and rebuilding. And so the question individually is this, like, are you a person committed to hearing God's voice? Is full obedience to God the joy and longing of your heart? Is it truly? So, so with that in mind, let's jump into the text. Gavin read it. Here it is. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a land with now, large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you didn't provide, wells you didn't dig, vineyards, olive groves you didn't plant, And then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. How do you feel when you read that? What does that make you think? For me, (laughs) I have to address an elephant in the room that comes from my modern lenses. Uh, Before we go further, we have to observe something. When I read, wait, 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 God's going to give Israel someone else's city (laughs) and someone else's stuff? And wells and vineyards. You know what this sounds like? It sounds like colonization. And, and I, well, this is the 21st century. We're not cool with that anymore. And God's talking about this is like a good promise. Right? How do you make sense of this? Who's with me? It feels, it feels bad to me. So, so if, you, if that's how you react to this, that's understandable. It's okay to have that gut reaction. As long as you realize that comes from your lens as a tremendously privileged Western person. Okay, so we need to pause and check our lenses. Remember, reading the Bible well demands self-awareness. 
We're, we're, we're going to get through this part. This is like the apologetic cultural piece before we get to the heart piece. So bear with me. This is important. Because some of you already shut down. It's like, whoa, God's going to help them colonize? That's, I'm out, or whatever. Well, no, it's not quite like that. We are a relatively affluent, wealthy culture, right, compared to 95% of the planet and basically all human history before us. We're very well off. Plus, we have to admit, we, uh, we are hypersensitive to our own brutal history of colonization and slavery, and rightfully so. We should absolutely renounce the evils of slavery and genocide in our own American past and work to rid our society of the lingering effects of systemic racism. 100%, we should work against those things. But at the same time, we follow Jesus uh, as 21st century Westerners, which Jesus was not that. Jesus was not in our 21st century. And so we have to realize how our modern and, yes, privileged and often progressive American lenses actually color our reading of the Bible. So... I don't know how many of you think of this when you open the Bible. How many of you realize when you step into the Bible, you're stepping into a foreign country? This is not an American book, you guys. Not even remotely is the Bible an American book. And at first you're like, totally, I know that. It was written in the Middle East or whatever. No, no, but the truth is, the English translation of the Bible is so embedded in the American story, we act like it is part of our story. It's just came from our story instead of a much older and bigger story of its own. I mean, it's on our monuments, and so we're like, it's ours or whatever in our consciousness. And some of that's wonderful in our culture. It's led to values and ethics we would all agree on. Uh, But the byproduct that's sad, you guys, is that we've managed to tame the Bible. We've forgotten how strange it is. We need to be Confront it to the point of being uncomfortable every time we open the Bible. Um, and, and, and we really feel it. We can't, we, we see it even through our lenses. We, we, we feel it when we read a text that talks about slavery or apparent colonization like this one, and it triggers our sensitivities and makes us uncomfortable with the Bible. We should always be uncomfortable with the Bible. We're not supposed to be comfortable with it because the Bible was born on the border of Africa, you guys, among a bunch of Middle Eastern immigrants escaping slavery. The Bible doesn't reflect the viewpoint of kings or popes or comfortable, educated middle class. That's not the perspective of the Bible. The viewpoint of the Bible is occupied peasants and underclass. That's who's talking. (laughs) And in the few moments when there are kings involved, it's prophets who are peasants calling them out. It's from the perspective of the underclass. So when God says to the oppressed Israelites, when he says this, hey family, I'm going to give you big cities you didn't build, I'm going to take it from other people and give you gardens, he's not talking about colonization, he's talking about justice. We have to see the big picture. At this moment, Israel is a puny tribe of unarmed ex-slaves, they're not even a nation, not even remotely. And on one side you have Egypt, (laughs) empire, global superpower, benefiting from enslaving bodies. Okay, for 400 years, Israel was enslaved. And then on the other side of Israel, on the other side, you have the Canaanites. So they're moving from Egypt, from one frying pan, into a burning fire. They have the Canaanites, also superpowers, military wonder of the world. They had chariots, you guys. Those were crazy. And, and one of the most violent cultures in, in world history to this day. 
famous for their child sacrifice rhythms. And so you have these bullies on both sides of the underdog. Uh, the, the, you could call them the rowdy one percenters. You know, they're the rowdy one percenters on both sides benefiting from the underclass. And, the, and, and sandwiched in the middle, you have puny Israel, not even a nation, beaten down, no match for the bullies. And God's like, I choose you as my family. After 400 years building houses for other people as their slaves, I'm going to give you houses you didn't build. And in the process, I'm going to shut down their violent, oppressive regimes, and it won't even be you fighting. It'll be miraculous. It'll be a butter knife against a chariot because it's me fighting, God says. It's me fighting for you. Uh, so, so most of us, we don't automatically see this when we read the Bible. We have to. This is the hard work of reading the Bible well um, because we grew up, most of us, in majority culture, relatively comfortable uh, which is why we read the Bible and we think things like, whoa, God sent a plague or a spirit to wipe out all the firstborn of Egypt, those innocent children. We immediately just think of that narrow, which is absolutely horrific in itself, thinking about that. Death is awful. God takes no delight in that in itself. But we think, how could a loving God kill Pharaoh's firstborn? Or how could God lead Israel to drive out Canaanites. This, this offends me. Um, and there's part of that that makes sense. But when I talk, listen, when I talk to my friends of color today who grew up in predominantly black churches and communities, they get this. They see, they see God's goodness. They get that this is a story of the abused somehow overthrowing the abusive 1% elite. They get that this is the great reversal they get that this is what Jesus was talking about when he said, so the last shall be first. Yeah, that slide, there it is. This is what Jesus was talking about. And the first shall be last. That is the picture here with the puny lasters, the ones who are at the back of the parade, Israel, God bringing them to the front. And, and a little bit more on this, very important. It's common, it's common to hear people talk about the Old Testament we haven't spent a ton of time in the Old Testament. We, we're going to spend a lot more time in the life of our church in the Old Testament. It's common to hear people saying, oh, the Old Testament is like this violent God, this violent picture of God, and then thankfully the New Testament comes along. You get the peaceful, nonviolent Jesus who changes everything or whatever. But listen, when you actually pick up the Old Testament and read it, you realize that's not remotely true. The Old Testament is just as full of grace as the New Testament. Even when God uses Israel to drive out the violent Canaanite empire, even in those moments, God offers ways for individual Canaanites to respond to God and become his family. That's grace, you guys. In fact, when we come to Jesus' family tree, I don't know if you've read Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, page one, it's this seemingly boring genealogy, but when you actually read it, you guys, we see multiple Canaanite women named and honored as great-grandmothers of Jesus. This grace, God doesn't want the Canaanites dead. He doesn't want genocide. He wants Canaanites and Egyptians, Romans and Greeks, African, Asian, Europeans, North American, South America. He wants us in his family, you guys. The reality is God never endorses genocide or colonialism 
in the Old Testament. But here's what God does do. He uses a low-tech, poorly armed, inexperienced group of underdog ex-slaves to miraculously dismantle high-tech, oppressive, imperial superpowers hell-bent against God. That's what God does. So so well-known, well-known scholar, John Walton, he, he, he puts this idea forward, and he, he suggests, just think of World War II. So this can be compared to what the Allies set out to do during World War II. They, the Allies were not on a mission to kill every German person, but to dismantle specifically the Nazi regime, right? It's the same. So, so there's a ton more going on in the Old Testament and it's, it's very complex, it's beautiful and deep and nuanced, but the point is, you guys, the Old Testament is an overwhelmingly beautiful story of God's grace and his power, lifting up the humble and weak and bringing down the arrogant and strong. It's the same thing Jesus will be doing on the last day. It's the same God. This is always how God's kingdom comes. And so with this in mind, can we read it again? This is the third time we're reading this now. We have our lenses adjusted a little bit. So when the Lord God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. How beautiful is that? God is gracious and compassionate and just, and he's so good. He's all of those things. And, and, and this is the God, Park Hill, San Diego, you guys, this is the same God you are invited to hear and respond to right now. He's inviting us to humble ourselves and listen to his voice. And so, and so that might be the missing piece for you. You might be like, wait, how does this apply to us? We're not disempowered slaves. You just said we're relatively wealthy, whatever. You just said, as Americans, we don't have the right lenses. It doesn't apply. And listen, yes, it is true in a real sense. We are the rich Egyptians. As citizens of the American superpower, we still feel the effects of slavery and racism reverberating generations after the fact. Yes, in a sense, we are the high-tech Canaanites, you guys, with the biggest military budget on the planet. Yes, it's important we locate ourselves accurately. Why, why is that important to locate ourselves that way? Just to be woke or whatever? No, not just to be woke, but to realize all of us are invited into the same family of God as this nation of Israel. We're all invited, just like several Egyptians were, and Canaanites, and Romans, and Greeks, and so on. You guys, this is huge, huge connecting point for us. This is why we can read the Old Testament story as our story. This is why. When Jesus died for the sins of the world, God's forgiveness was made available in every nation. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, the new creation project began. He's starting to heal. He's starting to redeem. From that moment on, Israel's story can now become everyone's. The only requirement, admit you need him. In other words, hear him. Hear God. That's the only requirement. 
Same requirement for every ethnicity, every class, every tribe, every language. Admit you need him just as much as the the ex-slaves in the Middle East wandering between two empires, hungry and thirsty, needed him. We're the same. God says it like this in verse 12 and 13. When you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see that? See what's happening there? God's like, I rescued you, and I want you to flourish in the new land. We're right on the border, you guys. This next year, this next 10 years is different. And and they're right on the border of the land. They're looking over the Jordan, seeing what's coming, not knowing what it'll be like, though, just like us. And God's like, I have plans to prosper you. But listen, I, I know how humans work. God made humans and he sees us act. He knows our motives. And he's like, I know how you work. As soon as humans flourish, as soon as humans feel rich and feel satisfied and full, you tend to forget that you needed me. You tend to forget you you were rescued. The story starts to get spun. And church, I believe this is the word for us right now. As, As, you know, First world, whatever, Americans, Westerners, we're used to a certain way of living, which is why the last year was so hard for a lot of us. We want to go back to normal or whatever, and and things will go back to whatever the normal is or the new normal, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. We will find a stride. You guys, we're totally going to find a new stride, and we're going to look back at this 10 years from now and be like, that was crazy, but here we are, you know? Uh, But whatever happens, whatever the future looks like, the key thing, do not forget the Lord who rescued you. That's it. That's it. Always remember who he is and what he's done. Worship is always a response to that, who he has said he is and what he's done to rescue you. Don't forget to worship, which also means don't forget who you are. Remember who you are. You were slaves to sin, now you're children of God. You were lost, you called out for help, Jesus rescued you, now you're a loved child of God. Do not forget this. Temptation will be to forget this. Whatever it takes, remember who you are. For Israel, this is what remembering looks like. Verse 13, fear the Lord your God. Serve him only, take oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods. There are other gods, you guys. They're not just fake. They're very real. And they're slinging the drugs of the abuse of sex and money and power and making you feel like you came up with it yourself. Do not follow them. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he'll destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Wait a minute, what's this? I don't remember this story. Maybe you're like, I, that's, a, that's an inside joke of some kind. I don't know what he's saying. But these, this is actually really important for a couple of reasons. Does anybody know what happened at Massa? Anybody know the story? Exodus 17, the children of Israel are freshly freed. They come through the parted sea. You've seen that, right? Prince of Egypt. And then, but then Prince of Egypt didn't have Massa. It's this moment. Well, here it is. Exodus 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community, just days after the Red Sea, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded, 
They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water. They're thirsty. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water. Moses replied, why do you quarrel? Why do you put the Lord to the test? So this was Masa. Um, So what do you think? Testing the Lord, good or bad thing? Brilliant. (laughs) Three of you get an A. (laughs) Not a trick question. (laughs) Whatever testing the Lord looks like, It's bad. We know that, right? So the story paints it as bad. So why? What did they do wrong? They're thirsty. How did they test the Lord and do this bad thing? But is it wrong to be like, God, I'm thirsty and feel really angry about your thirst? Is that what they did wrong? No, it's actually way more than that. The end of the scene explains. Verse 7. And he called the place Masa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because They tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? That is testing God. So just just to unpack that, testing God is what happens. When God says, I can be trusted, and we say, no, you can't. I don't think you can. Deuteronomy 6, our text, calls this following other gods. This is what following other gods looks like practically. It plays out in our lives when God's kids turn away to embrace the three big idols of the day, abusing money, abusing sex, and abusing influence. That is following other gods, a.k.a. testing the Lord, a.k.a. I don't trust you, God. Same. Bad is what he's saying because it dehumanizes you, destroys you. It's self-destruct is what that is. And and listen, um, don't get me wrong. Money and sex and power are beautiful. They're great. Don't hear me. I'm not the pastor harping on those things. They're all gifts. Money and influence and sex are good gifts meant to further the human family and expand and flourish the human family of the world. Blessings from God, 100%. But listen, when we remove sex, money, power from God's intended context... The result is the ruin of every relationship we're meant to enjoy. And so that's testing God. That's what testing God means. And it's ultimately why it's so, (laughs) I'll just, bad, why it's so evil, is that it's ultimately an accusation against the character of God himself. We're saying, God, you can't be trusted. I'm going to remove myself from the kingdom you're building, God, I'm going to build my own. That's testing God, following other gods, so, so here's how the text ends. Deuteronomy 6, right here, verse 17. He says, be sure to keep the commands. Don't test the Lord. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord, your God, and the stipulations and decrees he's given you. Do what's right and good in the Lord's sight so it may go well with you, and you may go in and take over the good land God, the Lord, promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. Church family, this is God's desire for every one of you. Every one of us are full flourishing in his family. And if you confess that Jesus is Lord and surrender to his goodness over your life and agree with him that he died on a cross to forgive your sin, God raised him from the dead to bring about this new creation project where God heals the world and gets rid of every injustice. If you believe all of this about Jesus and and live into it, then you are a child of God. It's just who you are. No one can change your identity. That's just who you are. So, so if you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, first of all, 
welcome, like very brave, post-COVID, non-Jesus followers coming to a Jesus-following gathering. That's amazing. That's super rare, more rare than ever in my recent memory. If you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, the invitation is wide. It's open. Join, join the family in admitting your need for forgiveness and healing. This family's not going anywhere. A hundred pandemics into the future, God's family is thriving, you guys. And this God is the definition of goodness, and he desires a relationship with you. We baptize people every month here. Uh, we open the waters as an act of worship. Last Sunday was the first Sunday in four years of church where no one was baptized. We, you, we usually have someone come forward every single month, but guess what? September 5th is another baptism Sunday. If no one comes forward to be baptized again, we will still bring out the water every first Sunday of the month because it is an act of worship. It is a sign that God is at work in the world and the entrance to his family is this covenantal act of baptism. So if you have never made that confession, we did a survey up in Portland, the church that sent us down here, uh, and, and we did a survey. How many of you have been baptized? The church at that time was like 3,500 people. Listen, over 10% of the church checked the box. I go here regularly for a long time and have never been baptized. The staff was blown away. I guess that's like very common. <laughs> but but that's, not, that's foreign to the world of Scripture. To enter the covenant family of Jesus is to enact the covenant through a ceremony called baptism, just like you enter a marriage through a wedding. It's the same. Or eloping or whatever your official thing is. And, and that's eloping with God, except your whole church is here. <laughs> September 5th. If you have not yet done that, if you're just kind of just kind of one foot in whatever, the act of commitment makes it real. This is what Deuteronomy 6 is all about. When you're baptized, you're not just, okay, now you're a baptized person. Now you're part of the covenant family. And, and, and you get into a community where you confess ongoing sin and like, oh, you're doing better. I'm doing better. Hey, if you see anything in my life that's not working out, if you see anything that doesn't look like Jesus, tell me. Oh, yeah, and you, tell me too. And there's this transparent thing that happens. You pray for each other and you learn the scriptures. That has to happen. This is Deuteronomy 6. Remember who you are. It happens through all of the things Jesus gave us to practice. Table, baptism, worship, scripture, community. And so for all of us who are followers of Jesus, that's the takeaway. As we step into the next, be aware. Listen, can I make you just bring something to your mind? The temptation is always going to be to forget the powerful, simple reality that you were rescued by God. Busyness, success, has a way of giving us spiritual amnesia. Just always has. You were rescued by God. You're rescued. You were once lost. Jesus died for your sins. How often have you prayed, Jesus, you died for my sins. Thank you. I was recently convicted even in preaching sermons here at Park Hill, I've been preaching here from the beginning, since 2017, and, and I have a renewed fire. I was talking to a friend of mine who's just a fiery preacher. I have a renewed fire to, just, to, just to speak more about the fact that Jesus died for my sins. I forget this 
to the point where I can nuance it out and, and make it this theological kind of debate, and how did he die, and like, what does that mean, and which atonement theory was most at play, or whatever. And like, that's cool. But like, Jesus died for my sins according to the scriptures. Does this haunt you? Remember who you are. Because of Jesus, you were a slave, now you're a child. You were walking in darkness, now you're light. It's your job for the rest of your life to remember that. Remember who you are. We're amazing forgetters. We're great at it. Hearing God means responding. And, and we're going to sing. Uh, Ali is going to lead us in singing, you know, I'm a child of God, I'm no longer slaves, that, that whole thing. It's super appropriate, right? I mean, for, for this teaching, literally the story we're in. Um, but we can sing that. I'm no longer slaves to fear, I'm a child of God. And at the same time, our life is just something else. And that's, that's a modern problem. And it reminds me of the scene, I'm going to close with the, the great words of the late, great Mufasa from Lion King. Um, best Disney movie, best scene from any Disney movie. And if you disagree, you're factually, scientifically wrong. <laughs> Simba's lazy around, he's lazing around eating like bugs, literally farting around eating bugs, right? And, and, but where is Simba supposed to be? Not in Hakuna Matata land. He's supposed to be taking his rightful place, his identity as king of Pride Rock, defeating his evil uncle sitting on his father's throne, right? Like, love this. So, so he, he, he goes to talk to his dad. This is very important. <laughs> he goes to talk to his dad. The spirit of his dad comes through the clouds, the stars. And, and did Simba forget who he was? Did he? According to Simba, did Simba forget who he was? No. According to his father, did Simba for, Yes. So, so here it is. Mufasa's like, Simba, you've forgotten me. It even has its own slide. So <laughs> it's like, Simba, you've forgotten me. And, and then, and then, and then what's, what's Simba's response? No, how could I? Simba didn't think you forgot. What do you mean forgot? I think of you all the time. I miss you. I, I, I rack myself with guilt that I'm not with you. Right? But, but what, does, what does Mufasa say? He says, you have forgotten who you are and so forgotten me. They're, they're united, okay? This is brilliant. So the, I, the idea, he, he doesn't remember at all. He thinks he remembers. He, he even has fond memories. But he has no remembrance because he's not living into his identity at all as father's child. Therefore, he forgets his father. This is how God's kids tend to behave. And we, we're masters at forgetting to the point where we're self-deceiving. No, how could I forget? Um, and instead, we abuse our lives, eating worms or whatever Simba did. And, and our father's like, no, you've forgotten. You've forgotten your child of light because you're devouring darkness. And therefore, you've forgotten who I am, the God of light. This is exactly what's going on in Deuteronomy 6. Don't forget who you are. Because that's the same as forgetting who I am, God says. Remember who you are. That's the single most important thing you can do as a follower of Jesus. You are rescued. You are loved. And the reason you come here is to remember. The reason you come to the table is literally to remember. Jesus says, remember me. 
The reason we sing and read and fast and pray and silence and solitude and whatever, all the Christian practices, is remembrance because we're master forgetters. And uh, so, so, yeah, let's, let's all stand together. Before we come to the table, you guys, we are going to have a time of prayer, intentional remembrance, and if any community leaders are here, any pastors are available, before we come to the table, you guys, up on my right and my left, both sides, there will be people ready to pray for you, that the Spirit would lead you in remembering with your whole life who God is and who you are. Maybe there's an area you've forgotten. Maybe there's an area of just forgetfulness, and you know it, you know it, you've seen it, God is lovingly pointing it out, and he's saying, you know, remember who you are. You're rescued, I died for your sins. It's as simple as that. It's, it's, Six-year-old Park Hill kids, Jesus died for my sins, according to the scriptures. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Lead us in remembering, starting with prayer. Starting with asking. Bring to mind scriptures and promises you've made. Remind us that we're loved.